this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guests today are a former counselling psychologist and barrister turned life coach. Separately, they've helped many people overcome personal difficulties through their therapeutic practices, written multiple books and had their writing featured in The Times, Harper's Bazaar and Huff Post. In 2020, the two women came together to develop an alternative offering to the weekly therapy work, which became a wellness retreat designed for women with a broken heart, known as the Heartbreak Hotel. Now, they've used their expertise from decades of writing and helping others to co-author a non-fiction work inspired by their real-life retreat. Finding Yourself at the Heartbreak Hotel invites readers to join group therapy sessions amongst the pages, giving insights and techniques for finding confidence along the way. Alice Haddon and Ruth Field, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, I'm fascinated by your background. Alice, if we could start with you. You ran a a private therapy practice in London for nearly a decade. You've worked in private and public counselling services for 25 years. Uh, Tell us more about your your professional life prior to the Heartbreak Hotel. Yeah, I'm a counselling psychologist and have been for many years. You know, I started my career in the NHS and um, a very different place then from a mental health perspective. And then, you know, weaved my way through various different projects. And, yeah, I had my own practice in the last decade before I started this, which was great. And I've always been really proud to do this work and really fulfilled by it. And it's a real privilege to be the kind of keeper of secrets and help people to say what's on their mind in a free and freeing way. Mm. And, yeah, just sort of switched gear a little bit when COVID happened and wanted to try and do it differently, sort of take people into their feelings and look after them a bit. Because I think although, you know, psychology is all around healing and taking care of, the the kind of methodology of it is still quite strict. You know, you don't hug your clients. Not that I go around hugging people (laughs) willy-nilly, but, you know, you don't offer them cups of tea. It's sort of still got its roots in the sort of Freudian practice of keeping it quite formal so I wanted to see if see what would happen I think if you really strip some of that back and were able to be more human in how you help people because that's what you do in life outside the therapy room that's a sort of more human way of taking care of people so that's the Heartbreak Hotel is very much fueled by care it's it's a kind of we call it the intensive care for the heart. <laughs> and, and you came from a completely different area, although you did start off yeah. studying medicine, Ruth. Oh, yeah, well, I did. And I wanted to be a psychiatrist, but I very quickly pivoted. But, yes, I mean, actually, as a, as a criminal barrister, which I was for some time, you're surrounded by heartbreak, very much so. And that was one of the hardest parts of the job, but also, you know, the most rewarding was being with people who were at their absolute lowest ebb and trying to, you know, advocate for them, basically. So I felt, in that sense, not a stranger to heartbreak in a working environment, not afraid of people's difficult experiences and pain, painful experiences. Mm. And also, you know, having some experience and being able to advocate for people. And I particularly love love then and love now advocating for women Uh, so even though it's a bit of an unusual maybe an unusual 
way into what we're now doing, it sort of all made sense to me. <laughs> I mean, what I find really fascinating is that you talk a lot about the power of story and how you incorporated that into your legal work. And it really does come down to who can tell the best story. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I'm afraid it, it does. And that it can be looked at as a, a not, not a good thing as well as a, a good thing. But yes, and that is, you know, the root of narrative therapy too, that it really there's so much power in how we choose to interpret and tell the story of our experiences, particularly painful experiences. And, you know, we do it ourselves, about ourselves and each other all the time. And actually there's so much to be gained, so many insights to be gained from looking at that objectively and, and trying to see it in a different way and adopting a different perspective. I mean, the thing with the jury trials was that I was always, you know, as a barrister, you're always trying to find one small thing in the case that you've got, in the evidence that you've actually got, to weave a story around that becomes very compelling. And I suppose what's, what occurred to me since was that sort of how we can get stuck is we can think of one little negative thing about ourselves or about a relationship we have and we weave this narrative around it that's so powerful, you know, a jury of your peers could convict you of it. And you call yourself, your alter egos, the grit doctor. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, as Alice probably knows, and my husband constantly reminds me of, I'm not actually that gritty, really. <laughs> but I like to pretend to be. It's my armour. <laughs> but that came from, because you, you wrote a book called Run, Fat Bitch, Run. What a fantastic title. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do live by that book. I run pretty much most days around the woods with some women that I live nearby and it's really stood me in good stead. I mean, I'm a massive advocate for the mental health benefits of daily exercise, so I stand by it. It's a, it's a very motivating book that certainly motivates me. No one will let me get away with not going for a run because they all know I wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you pivot then from, from Barrister into to somebody who, who wrote that, who also wrote Get Your Shit Together um, uh, and, and now it works in, in the sort of counselling sphere? Yes, well, I wrote the book, Run, Fabulous Run, when I was uh, on maternity leave from the bar. I was pregnant with our twin sons and it was just one of those very lucky things. It, it got picked up and it got sold. And so in maternity leave, I found myself in this very happy position of having a sort of new job that didn't really require me to do a huge amount at the beginning. And so... I was able to reflect on, you know, did I, when would I want to go back to the bar? And it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I couldn't see my way back to it with having young children, but I could see my way to writing more and helping women. And so, you know, I wrote more books and then I did a course. Um, I went back to study and study creative writing. And, you know, I've been writing ever since, copywriting as well and paid writing gigs and trying and failing to write some other books too. So this opportunity to write this book was just a gift, an absolute gift for me, because I couldn't think of, you know, it's one of the most joyful writing experiences of my life. Um, and what I've never done was write with someone. And so that was a huge new learning for me. And it's, it's an amazing thing to try and allow each other to sort of together find a voice and help each other and you know edit each other and it was very very intensive and kind of amazing and I think we've come up with something 
quite unique and Alice's idea for the retreats to try and make them more human. So rather than having the sort of top-down model of the therapists at the top and patient at the bottom, it's to put it onto the horizontal axis where we're all humans who suffer in a space together and we can help. And the book is trying very hard to recreate that sense. It doesn't have, you know, boxes with case studies that just really illuminate how clever the therapists are at helping them. It's, you know, we've created character portraits of people that reflect the global guests who we've had on the retreat and writing as if it's happening in the moment and that these people are actually in the retreat with us, mm. with the reader. And that's, a, that's our way of trying to, you know, get back on this horizontal axis of trying to say, you know, we all suffer, we're all human and we can all learn from listening to each other's stories. Mm. I mean, Alice, how universal is the feeling of heartbreak? Do we all suffer in the same way? I think on average we have two heartbreaks in our lifetime. So I think everybody has heartbreak. I don't think we can escape that. And of course, romantic heartbreak is just one kind. So, you know, heartbreak can be systemic, like we talk about in the, the book, the heartbreak of, you know, women being devalued for all the work that they do, not paid, etc. It can be grief, you know, that's a that's my story is a story of grief through heartbreak, really. And do people experience it differently? I think they do. And I think, for example, romantic heartbreak, how that lands with you as a, as a person isn't just a kind of pocket of it's happening now. It stretches back to all the other experiences that you've had in your life. And so if you've had um, difficult experiences in your childhood and your teenage years and like as Ruth said, it can add up to a different story if you've been rejected or been heartbroken before or if you've been undervalued as a person. Um, so I think people have have different experiences of it. I think betrayal, for example, is, a, is, is very traumatic and we've found, interestingly, it surprised us actually that there's a high level of post-traumatic stress disorder in the women that we've seen who've been betrayed. And I think if you've been traumatised before then it can be even more traumatic. So I think, yeah, depending on the circumstances, I guess, and, and your own personal circumstances, yeah, I think people can experience it differently. But I think what we're trying to express is that it's long been delegated or re relegated to the pop songs and the novels and, you know, get, get back up on your feet. But actually, no one's really taken it seriously. It's a very, very, very painful experience that kind of, I think, threads right down to your soul and, and your sense of worth and whether you belong and whether you're valued and wanted and loved. And it's a very profound thing. So we want to hold the flag for that and, and take care of it. You referenced your own story. Now, that was in a few years ago when you lost your mother. Yes, she, she died in 2020 in the first week of the lockdown, the first lockdown. Um, she'd been ill for a long time, so it was sort of fast but not unexpected. <laughs> I've had lots of grief in my life. My twin brother died when I was 19 and then my father died when I was in my 30s. And so I've lost quite a lot of my family. And I'm not unfamiliar with that feeling of heartbreak. And I think, yeah, being familiar with it made me, you know, when I was put back into that grief and my, when my mother died, I remembered it. I remembered the other experiences, but like what I was saying about people's experience of heartbreak, you remember it from before. And I just thought, mm, you know, you just, 
you just need time. You need much more time than we're given and you need more than we're given. You need you need to be you know, your instinct when someone is in pain is to is to wrap them up and, and just give them some solid structure around themselves until that they can build themselves up again. And I just thought this is what I want to be able to give to, to women in pain. I, I want them to have that if they don't have that. And mm. Yeah. And so this idea of the Heartbreak Hotel was born. It's a retreat where people go, they have intensive therapy, but they're just looked after. They get fantastic meals. They're in a beautiful place. They do exercise. You're looking after them, really. You're cocooning them for four or five days. Yes, great word, cocooning. We, we use that a lot. We like to think of it as a sort of wraparound care. Everything is taken care of right down to, you know, we don't like our women to even boil a kettle or... <laughs> Keep having a, to tell them not to, yeah, they're not to put their dishes in the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we laugh, but it's actually quite... It's also... It really... It's extraordinary how hard it is for women to not put the plate in the dishwasher or not make a cup of tea. But it's only once they really let us be in service to them that they can really start to tend to their, you know, psychological and emotional needs. And, you know, there are blankets everywhere and hot water bottles are constantly being refilled. And, you know, I must confess when Alice, when we started it and Alice said, you know, we need all these hot water bottles and blankets, I was a little bit like, is she... Uh, like, that's not going to do anything. Like... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, because I didn't, I don't have that experience and I, I, I've not been in that same kind of grief. I didn't know. But what I did know was that Alice is amazing at what she does and that I was never in any doubt. So I thought, even if I think it might be a little bit out there, I'm not sure how important hot water bottles going to be. If she says they're important, then they probably will be. And I cannot believe, even in summer, how everyone wants those hot water bottles filled and they're holding them and they need blankets and they need hugs and that wraparound stuff is very very real and then they can feel all of the feelings that they have and then they move slowly through them. Mm. Let's talk about the book because this exists for people who, who can't come to, to one of your retreats and you also do day retreats in, in London. But this is written, it's sort of, it kind of set out a little bit like a, a screenplay. So it's in three parts, the, the present, the past, the future. But you, you set it out so we meet, as you say, this, this amalgamation of characters that you've had over the years coming to you for help, but very definite characters. And what we also see there is the different type of people that we're attracted to. Uh, and I wondered if you just run us through those kinds of people that, that cause us heartbreak. Dark triads. <laughs> <laughs> or, or dick dust, as one of them is called, I think. <laughs> um, there, are, there are a lot of good people out there, but there are a group of people that are overrepresented, I would say, in the partners of people who come to the Heartbreak Hotel and the dark triad is a set of traits that comprises of narcissism, psychopathy and Machiavellianism not in a clinical sense but we find it very interesting that when the women come on the retreat and the women reading the book you know, will probably have the same experience they're full of confusion and you know self-doubt and you know lack of self confidence and that's often because they've been gaslit and it's such a popular word now isn't it or manipulated or devalued 
by the people that they've been with. I mean, there's this devaluing just when someone goes to have, have an affair. They say, you're not, you're not good enough, I'm going to go and find someone else. But lots of stuff around that about who they are. And, and as they go through the weekend and they hear the stories from other women and they hear us talking about these kinds of behaviours that the dark triads exhibit, you see them go, oh, wait, hang on a minute. That's, so that's what's going on here. It's not actually because I've been stupid or, you know... That I'm, not you know, hot enough. not enough. There's some, and that's just a wonderful moment for us. It's not like we're going around saying, you know, there's only one person bears any responsibility in a heartbreak, and look at all these bad men or women. It's not. It's that it just that there is a lot of. I mean, there is largely men, but not completely, um, who are doing these, you know, treating women like this. And when they realise that it's that's what it is, they can they start to sort of go okay so that it may say something about me but it doesn't say what I think it says about me yeah yeah uh, and you also talk about attachment styles uh, so you have your your safe harbors your lone rangers your close rangers and your roller rangers just tell us a little bit about that yeah so uh, there's a lot about attachment theory out there and um, we did a lot of research on it and we a lot of our thinking was around you know, some of the work, the language that's used can be a little bit pejorative and judgy. So, you know, anxious attachment styles and avoidant attachment styles. It just sound a bit like there's something wrong here. So we wanted to use different language that we thought was less pejorative and better reflected what was going on. But what Alice was saying about the dark triad and why that's so important is that Unfortunately, people who exhibit dark triad traits don't map on to the normal attachment templates. And that's why people are left sort of reeling from the experience of their betrayal, because they may have thought, oh, well, I'm an anxious attachment style. And he was or she was an avoidant attachment style. But actually, if you've got a dark triad template slash set of traits you're way beyond an avoidant attachment style. You're not on the, those coordinates at all. And so that's why having the two, you know, we, we do some work around in the book and on the retreat around attachment styles so people can sort of really bring into awareness where they're at so that then they can use that guiding them forward in terms of their future romantic relationships. But like Alice was saying, if the dark triad was involved, and unfortunately it's very prevalent on our retreats among the women who've been betrayed, then that's a whole nother level of, oh, thank God, that makes sense. That's why none of everything that I thought of before made sense, but it does now because I was dealing with someone who perhaps had these dark triad traits and they're operating by a completely different set of rules. Coming from someone who's had five times a week analysis, <laughs> um, you also, and I love this, you explore the idea that some negative memories might be too painful to explore, which is something I wish analysts would understand, that sometimes you actually just can't go there. What can be done instead? I think... There's a yeah. There's a real sense that therapy has to be a deep excavation of everything. I think people get really scared of that and deeply buried things. There's a sense of like the structure will fall apart and I'll end up in a mess. And actually, you know, it's about meaning making. Good therapy, and as Ruth was saying about the narrative, it's 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 joining the dots of your experience into a story that is helpful for you because you can do it in many different ways and so I think therapy I mean I hope you had a really good experience of your, 
your analysis. You certainly seem very stable. (laughs) 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 Is about helping people to, giving them the tools to understand their own experience, whether they want to talk about it or not, with a new perspective that gives them more stability, more confidence, more possibility. So is it necessary to go into them? Sometimes, but I think that always has to be the person's choice and a lot can be done, you know, there's an Eric Clapton song about tears too deep for, pain too deep for tears. Mm. You know, you can't ask someone to go, I, I know that, like the pain of my my brother's death I don't I don't want to I had a therapist say to me you'll never make a great psychologist unless you go there and I was like really oh god (laughs) you know I don't know I think you can think therapy can be done in many ways and it's about how we make meaning of our experience that's Mm. my view and you actually do recommend various exercises throughout the book yeah well I was actually going to say that you know as something you could do as an alternative to talking about something that's so traumatic you just don't want to talk about it is, you know, I like to call it a DIY EMDR session, which is just simply to go out for a walk or a run because there's something that happens in the alternate tap-tap of the feet that stimulates the left side and the right side of the brain, which is what happens in REM sleep and is what they try and recreate in an EMDR session, which is EMDR is eye movement desensitisation reprocessing, Mm which is used for trauma uh, patients and war veterans historically. And so what happens in EMDR and in REM sleep is the right-left alternate stimulation helps trauma settle down in the brain, sorry, file in the brain in the right place. And so, long story short, if you go for a good walk or a run, you're kind of helping the brain file stuff away without really having to talk about it. Mm. I mean, it would be good if you were sort of thinking about it a bit. So there's a sort of reason why we feel really good after a run or a walk that's sort of beyond just endorphins and serotonin. It can be because you've actually helped process a difficult, traumatic memory. Mm. You have various kind of um, checkpoints along the way. So you have your fledgling belief, which is usually something about not being good enough. Uh, you go on to your protective strategy. Well, I'm, I'm not going to do that then. That's, you know, then the unintended consequence of that, which is that you possibly feel lost or lonely. And then onto a flying belief, which is taking you forward. And, and that's the whole purpose of this book is to allow you space to find yourself. And you write it in a way that there is space incorporated within the book, isn't there, for individual <laughs> readers to, to find their own way. Thank you for saying that. I fought quite hard for there actual <laughs> to be actual spaces, <laughs> black spaces in the book. Yeah, I think one of the things we do on the retreat, and we encourage people to do it when they read the book, is to not focus on the person that's broken your heart. Because... That's what happens when you're heartbroken. You're trying to make sense of it and you're trying to understand what the other person has done and why they've done it. That's not going to take you where you need to go. Where you need to go is to get back together with yourself. And so, yeah, the space to do that um, meaning-making and to look back and see if there's other ways of making meaning of your early experience which will give you this, yeah, allow you to spread your wings and feel confident to kind of soar into the sky as the woman that you are is, um, yeah, you need to take the time to connect with yourself, to, to yeah, find yourself as you are um, without all the layers of 
devaluing that women often have to encounter. Mm. And you talked about women staying in touch. I mean, what you're also doing is really uh, forging this lovely community of people that that are there as a, a kind of mutual support group. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, our big mission is we want to light up hearts all over the world and we want women to hear each other's stories and stand together and, you know, rise in, in their power. And that's so much bigger and stronger when done collectively. And it really does happen. It happens when we do the retreats. You see the, the women leave and they're connected and we're hoping they're spreading that good energy to other women in their communities and that's exactly the intention of the book too, which, you know, hopefully will reach many, many more women mm. and that we all join together and, you know, rise in our power, mm. which and our power incorporates all of our vulnerability and all of our fragility and all of all of our experience. You know, nothing is shameful. Nothing is hidden. That is who we are. All of that. Mm. Now, I understand why, in physical terms, this has to be single sex, but the book is for everybody because men get heartbroken too. Men definitely get heartbroken too and they feel it very deeply. And if they can get something from this book, that would be really wonderful. I think Ruth and I feel that there is a certain connection between the heartbreak of women personally and the heartbreak of women kind of politically almost. And that heartbreak, the personal romantic heartbreak for women can sit in a different context as a result of the more systemic heartbreaks that we have experienced and that we do experience by virtue of being women. We write about that in the book, it's weaved through. So we've decided to kind of focus on women partly because we are, but also because we feel that there's a job to be done around the bigger picture of systemic heartbreak and betrayal for women. And again, it's not to say, I mean, there was this, we, we write in the book about broken heart syndrome, which is over overrepresentative in women, but there's been some research to show that... Uh, and, and that's a physical thing. That's a physical thing. It mimics an actual heart attack. Like 7% of A&E heart attack presentations are um, broken heart syndrome, so it looks like a heart attack, but it's not. I mean, the, the, the one explanation is hormones. When women get to a certain age and they lose their hormones, they lose the protection that the oestrogen gives their heart against stress. But in South Korea, they see it as a consequence of the piling up of anger of being you know, devalued in society and having little agency over your own life. But the Swedes have done a study which included men in broken heart syndrome, and they found that where men had the same life experience as women in terms of the you know, injustices and the little power and caring a lot. They describe it as being worn down to the bone. They also experience broken heart syndrome. So men men do have that sort of feeling, all those feelings. But on the whole, men do operate in a different context to women. And I think that's why we, we feel that there's kind of unapologetic feminist agenda to what we're doing. Mm, absolutely. Uh, finally, Ruth, people can find you in lots of ways. Obviously, they need to buy and read the book. But <laughs> yes. you're on Instagram, you have a website. And of course, you have this wonderful physical premises in the countryside in Britain. Yes, we do. So we've got our next day retreat is on the 24th of Feb. That's in London in Shoreditch. You can book on straight via the website, which is www 
theheartbreakhotel.co.uk. Our next full residential retreat is on the 15th to the 18th of March in the Peak District. Again, book on the website or book in for a free consultation to find out more about it. And you can find us on Instagram. Our Instagram handle is the Heartbreak Hotel London. And yeah, we look forward to hearing from you and do buy the book. It's available in all good bookshops, online <laughs> and on audio, which is quite exciting. <laughs> it's called Finding Yourself at the Heartbreak Hotel by Ruth Field and Alice Haddon. It's published by HQ and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Mariella Bevan and Tamsin Howard. Uh, many thanks to my guests, Ruth Field and Alice Haddon, and you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.